Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Where do you see yourself five years from now? That's a great question for someone who didn't have an ambition to be in this position, right? Could you see yourself running for statewide office? Anything is a possibility. I'm not going to hold myself back from anything. Any position that interests you? I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Rivera? <laughs> Treasurer Rivera? Secretary Rivera? I think they all sound good. <laughs> There's been a, ser a serious uptick in, in violence, obviously, uh, with people uh, getting shot. Patrol officer Frank Moody says Providence police recovered a record 200 guns last year. It's not uncommon to make a stop and recover a gun. It's a problem. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. Tonight we begin in Central Falls, Rhode Island's smallest city, perhaps best known for its big problems, poverty, education, housing, crime, and COVID-19. The city's mayor, Maria Rivera, knows many of those challenges firsthand. She grew up in the city and has struggled to make ends meet. Like many residents, she didn't speak English. Despite those obstacles, Rivera is a success story, and as Michelle San Miguel first reported back in February, the mayor has high hopes that her city will be just as successful as she has been. I think the biggest fear here in Central Falls has to be trust. Trust for different reasons. They're undocumented, there's language barriers, they don't trust the system. Mayor Maria Rivera spent her first year in office working to earn the trust of the people of Central Falls. She says she does it by showing up. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, how are you? Thank you. You're welcome. On this Thursday afternoon in January, the mayor was handing out at-home COVID-19 test kits. There's an urgency to get tested. The city of 22,000 people has had the highest rate of COVID-19 cases in Rhode Island. Hi, you're welcome. Look at you, you're always so active. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Many people say to me, we haven't seen a mayor who has been out there speaking to the residents face to face. What you see here <laughs> in a blazer with dress pants, this is not where I want to be, sitting at City Hall. I need to be out there helping the residents of the city. You said you were anxious about sitting behind a desk all day. I do. I get really anxious because those who know me, I'm not in this position because I was sitting behind a desk and people were coming to me. I'm in this position because I was out there and the residents of this city knew me on a personal level. This is why I'm in this position because they trusted me and put me here. Do you, Maria Rivera, having been duly elected to the office of mayor of the city of Central Falls, in January of 2021, Rivera was sworn in as the first female mayor of Central Falls, two years after becoming the city council president. Congratulations. For Rivera, being hands-on at times calls for directing traffic at a COVID testing site. On other occasions, she's wearing personal protective equipment as she talks with people who are waiting to get tested. One of her biggest challenges so far, 
reducing the spread of the virus in a densely populated city of triple deckers. It's no secret that Sanchez Falls was the hardest hit community and why. When you have two and three families living in an apartment and you're asking them to do something that they can't do, we need to find a solution to that. We were asking them to isolate, they couldn't isolate. How could I ask somebody to isolate in a household when they have 10 people living in an apartment? This was an elementary school here and it hasn't been open for a long time, like 15 years. Rivera envisions this former school building being converted into apartments along with 11 other unused properties. That's a lot of idle space in a city that's just over a square mile. If I can get these 12 properties and convert them into housing, we can have about 200 more apartments here in the city. But it's a challenge because I need to acquire these properties. If I want to acquire these properties, it's going to cost about 4.4 million. I have a budget of $19 million. I can't take out $4 million to acquire these properties, which is why I'm having conversations with everybody at the state level and try to get the site acquisition. If they can help us with the site acquisition, I can guarantee you that we are going to have more housing here in the city. The current housing stock needs attention too. According to the city, more than 95% of the housing units were built before lead paint was banned in the state. Rivera says the number of children who've suffered lead poisoning has increased during the pandemic since children spent more time at home. A lot of these houses were built in the early 1900s. Landlords are unaware that they have lead in their homes, which is why we are addressing this issue and taking it upon ourselves to make sure that we contact the landlords. We bring them into housing court, not because we want to penalize them, but to have a conversation with them and make them aware of what the issues are and connect them to the resource to bring their property up to code. Rivera has high hopes for the city she first called home when she was 10 years old. Her parents worked at a painting factory in Central Falls while she was growing up. She says she never imagined she'd one day hold the top job in the city. I grew up in a family where you get married and you dedicate yourself to your husband. You find a job and you just stay in that job, which is what I did. I got married to my high school sweetheart I had my two kids, just worked full time, went to college, come back home, take care of the family, go back to work the next day. Didn't have anybody around me to talk to about politics or what working in government was like. That all changed when Rivera got divorced and became a single mom of two kids. She decided she wanted to become more involved in her community. You know, I'm in a household with two incomes and all of a sudden I'm in a household with one income. So I wanted to do more. The first thing I did was join the board of the school that both of my kids attended. And after that, I kept saying to myself, I want to do more. You know, I want to continue getting engaged. I want to meet other people. In 2014, Rivera attended the Rhode Island Latina Leadership Institute. And soon after, people were encouraging her to run for office. One of the biggest things you had to overcome was your fear of public speaking. Yes, and when I joined uh, the Leadership Institute, they ask you, what is something you want to overcome? Write it on a piece of paper, don't tell anybody. And by the end of the 10 months, we're hoping you can overcome that. And mine was public speaking. By the end of the 10 months, I hosted their anniversary event. I was the, the public speaker. <laughs> First, I'd like to thank God and all of you for being here. It's a good thing Rivera, who's 44, no longer fears speaking in public. She does it a lot. I'm filled with immense gratitude, but my heart aches as well. The responsibilities of the job can be daunting, says Rivera, but she says the support of her loved ones keeps her going 
including her father, who passed away in 2013. A photo of them hangs beside her desk, and his memory fills her with emotion. He was not, he hasn't been part of this, but I have a picture of him here because he was always that one person that always said to me, you have to believe in yourself. You have to do what you want to do. Just believe in yourself. Don't let anybody hold you back. There have been times where I doubted myself and I, I questioned certain things and I dream with him. And it's him telling me, like, you're okay. You're okay. Just continue doing what you're doing. Few things have made her question herself more than when she announced while she was mayor-elect that she was bringing in a new police chief from the force in Providence, Anthony Roberson. That was probably one of my biggest challenges, right? A challenge that makes me emotional. But why? Why does it make you emotional? Because it made me doubt myself. I'm coming into this position and I'm making changes that I had never had to do before. People were mad. The residents of the city, some of the residents of the city, the police department, they were not happy with my decision. I had been following Colonel Roberson's work for like three years. And I really, really admired the one-on-one -on -one contact he had with the community in the city of Providence where he worked. And that's what I wanted to see here. I wanted to see that engagement. I want to have a community where residents feel comfortable with the police department. I want to have a community where a police department feels safe and feels comfortable with the residents of the city. And that's what we've done. The transition to a new chief wasn't easy, says Rivera, but she says she's happy with his leadership. Yeah, I had to meet with the union, speak with the union, speak to them about trusting me and just giving me the opportunity. And I said to them, just give me six months. And in six months, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable, hold him accountable. If this is not working in six months, we'll have another conversation and you can help me hire somebody else. And in six months, after those six months, I can tell you that I think the department is content. Under Chief Roberson, Central Falls became the first community in the state to train all of its officers in nonviolence. Rivera counts that among her successes. Another is helping pass a bond referendum to build a new high school. Despite her accomplishments, she says the needs in the state's poorest city remain great. You can use these for your employees. You appreciate this. Okay. So helpful for these days. She recently stopped by several businesses with Commerce Secretary Stephen Pryor to distribute COVID tests along with information about a small business grant. She had, a, she had a hard time with her business. I know. I still have it. Still have it. I still have it, but we're going walking. The hardest challenge for me as mayor for the city has been our budget, right? There's a lot of need in the city. There's a lot of things that I want to get done. There's a lot of things the residents ask me for that I can't accomplish because of our budget. Where do you see yourself five years from now? That's a great question for, for someone who didn't have an ambition to be in this position, right? I am truly overwhelmed with the amount of people that have reached out to me to ask me, what is your next step? You need to start getting ready for your next step. My focus right now is leading the city and accomplishing what I want to accomplish. Could you see yourself running for statewide office? Anything is a possibility. I'm not, I'm not going to hold myself back from anything. Any position that interests you? Uh, I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Rivera? <laughs> Treasurer Rivera? Secretary Rivera? I think they all sound good. <laughs> now we turn to a story that offers some hope through tragedy. 
If it seems like you're hearing more about shootings these days, you're right. In 2020, murders in the United States jumped more than 27 percent, the sharpest increase in six decades. Last year, murder rates went up again. As we first reported back in March, Providence experienced almost two dozen homicides in 2021, the highest number after a decade of decline in violent crime. Tonight, a second look at the disturbing trend in the guns and gangs that seems to dominate the news and the people who are trying to turn it around. Two days after the city's 23rd homicide of the year, Providence police are investigating a separate shooting. New details about the deadly weekend shooting and the man who was killed. On the 20-year-old man shot on Manton Avenue in Providence last night. These are streets that made me who I am, for better or for worse. You got to take the go with the bad, you know. This is a great neighborhood, a lot of good people, very diverse. But there's a lot of opportunities to choose a path that, you know, that leads to death or prison. Many of those caught in the crossfire of that path are young men, often associated with street gangs. Thomas Lumpkins is a former gang member who has turned his life around and is now helping others to do the same. But he says there have been many challenges along the way and personal tragedies. I just recently lost my little brother. To, um, he was murdered recently. And, your um, brother? Wait yes. You lost your brother. He was murdered. Yes. Here in Providence. Oh, uh, yes. That victim's name is Torres Lumpkins, and his brother told me he was a good man. There's things like that that you just don't come back from. You can never, you have to, you know, create a new normal for yourself. Before I turned 18, I'd already been to at least three funerals of close friends. Um, Before prison. the age of 18, yes. you lost three friends. Yes. While in high school. Um, and just recently, I just served a five-year prison sentence for um, actions that I'm not that proud of. But, Can you um, say what, what happened? Um, I was arrested for firearms and drug charges. So you made bad choices. Wh why, Thomas? Um, my mom had five kids, and uh, three of us are boys, and there's no fathers in the household, so, you know, you know, she did the best she could. She did a great job, you know, with what she had at her disposal. And there's a lack of opportunities, there's a lack of resources for people, and it shapes their perspective that this is all that they have. Their self-worth is affected by what they see around them. So they just, they dive into this lifestyle. They die or they're in prison. And once you go to prison, it's not a rehabilitative, like, environment. It's just a warehouse for criminals. There's always constant threats when you're living this lifestyle. Um, people die, you see people die and things happen and um, you gotta do something, you know? Sometimes it's either uh, fight or flight, you know? So today, in the same neighborhood where Something he once boy. committed crimes, Lumpkins now mentors at-risk youth. We're trying. Yeah, that's the first step. It all starts with trying, effort, being open-minded, you know what I'm saying? Like chase some accomplishments and that feeling of accomplishment because it's gonna it's gonna push you to do things you really didn't think you could do. You know what I'm saying? I'm speaking because that's that's what I'm doing. Lumpkins works at the Nonviolence Institute in South Providence. It was founded to generate peaceful alternatives to gang life. The organization sought him out because he's been there. How did you get involved in a crew, which is the new word kind of for a gang? Um, is this childhood friends? I wouldn't always uh, say, like, I was in a gang, but, you know, that's how 
the law classifies it in a neighborhood where there's violence and and just um just anger, just inner anger from a lot of people that you begin to have turmoil with this street or this family or this things like that and you just you just um you band together to protect each other. You know, it's like nowadays it's like it's cool to be in a gang, but it's like when I was younger, it was more about us just kind of protecting ourselves and finding our own identities. Some of them feel like the gangs are their, their families. and you know, Major David LePayton is commander of the investigative division in the Providence Police Department. They're good kids. Most of them, not all of them, believe mm. but most of them, they're, they're good kids. Uh, a lot of these kids work. You know, they, they, they have jobs, um, and they're not hanging on the corner. You know, they're, they're not that angry, bitter person mm -hmm. you think that would make a gang kid, right? Yeah. Are there a lot of gangs in Providence? Um, I wouldn't say there's a ton of gangs. Um, see, yeah, you have to realize, like, a, a gang doesn't get together and register themselves, right? So, so you and I are hanging on the street corner, and then you know, another friend comes, and, you know, we, we hang around for a couple of days. And, hey, why don't we call ourselves this, and we'll be, a, you know... It starts like that. What is up right now is gun violence, which is deeply, deeply concerning to all of us. Which means that if you're a person who is involved with guns or involved in gangs, it is, uh, it's dangerous out there. According to Providence Police, three people were shot and one person was stabbed inside of Rebel Lounge here earlier this morning. I would say many of the homicides are due to nothing more than an insult on social media or really uh, yes it's it's not it's not about guns or maybe a girlfriend an old girlfriend's with someone else so it, it's not like you'd see in the old days when they talk about you know turf and and you know money and it's just not like that um, and you look at it and you say well, it's just foolish like you, not only are you, you're taking a life, but we're going to get you. And if you shoot them and you kill them, you're going away for double life. So you're going too. It doesn't make any sense at all. In all, there were some 75 shootings in Providence last year. 23 were murders, the highest jump in a decade. It's all over the country, uh, the violence and the homicides. What do you make of it? Well, I, if I was to point at one reason why the murder rate has gone up, I would say it was the, the guns on the street. There's a lot more guns on the street. If you remember during the COVID days, you know, a year ago, there was lines outside of gun stores. And what happened was some people took advantage of it and they became straw buyers. And what is a straw buyer? So a straw buyer is somebody that can go in and legally buy a gun. You buy a gun, take it home, and then sell it to somebody who can't legally buy it. Because they have a criminal record? Right. There's been a lot more firearms recovered recently, as you can see. Patrol officer Frank Moody says Providence police recovered a record 200 guns last year. It's not uncommon to make a stop and recover a gun, or more than, than one or two. And he says not only is there an arsenal out there, the weapons turn up everywhere. I mean, one instance, I came to work early in the morning. I got off at 95 North at Point Street, and there was a gun in the intersection with a, a magazine. And I was <laughs> so at some point in time, um, somebody had dumped that gun at the intersection. There's been a, ser a serious uptick in, in violence, obviously, uh, with people 
uh, getting shot. It's a problem. My daughter has these like beautiful hazel eyes. Artist Jem Barros understands how bullets can rip a family apart. During a robbery in 2012, three neighborhood men fatally shot her daughter Shamika in her Providence home. So when I got the news and I arrived at her home, I was greeted right away with the, uh, the detectives. And I begged one of them. I said, well, if you go in there and you just, like, if you can just look at her eyes, like she has pretty hazel eyes, and I'll know it's her. Or if you could just shake her and just tell her, and tell her her mom is outside. But he says, ma'am, I'm sorry. And I just knew that she was gone. I knew she was gone. Red Rain is a piece that I created. Gradually, Barrow says she found healing through art. One of her recent paintings reflecting the city's bloodshed is titled Red Rain. It hangs at the Nonviolence Institute, where Barros is now a community workshop trainer. I wanted it to say that we all bleed the same, that we're all being affected by gun violence. I am original. Do you need proof? Another local artist, Providence rapper Hammer Beams, became the city's 23rd murder victim late last year. His real name, James Owens. He is Thomas Lumpkin's cousin. Thomas, the trauma of what you've been through, how has that affected you? Um, I like to think it's making me a better person. Um, I like to use everything that I go through to build myself up and build up those around me. Um, there's definitely times where it shakes me. I try to be authentic with who I am and let them know like, I came from where you came from. Like, to some degree, I still am that kid from the streets too but I'm elevating myself, you know what I'm saying? I try to over over express to them the importance of recognizing your own potential. And he's doing that by coaching teenagers like Juan Quaranta. So always seen potential in you, bro, even when you was a little knucklehead. <laughs> a lot of people try to push you down the bad path and try to, you know, since I'm young, dumb-minded, try to make you do anything. And he took that, he did the opposite, and try to make me do better, become a man. Lumpkin says he's trying hard to end the cycle of gang violence by gaining the trust of kids who might otherwise face tragic consequences on either end of a gun. For me, I feel like failure is not an option. I feel like I like to tell myself that I'm destined for great things and I like to make the moves to, to bring myself closer to that, to that goal. But I do feel like I have a chance at redemption and actually you know, exact some kind of change in the neighborhood that I, that I love. Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza recently announced that more than one and a half million dollars from the Federal Rescue Plan will help to establish citywide nonviolence training and youth mentorship programs. Some money will go to the Nonviolence Institute. And some other hopeful news to report from January to June of 2022, homicides in Providence saw a 60% decline. Finally tonight, back in March, contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew introduced us to one man and a group of area teens who are fighting gun violence with an unlikely weapon. 
I've known people that have died from cancer. I've known people that have died from, you know, auto accidents, taking their lives in other ways, complications from diabetes. But I don't know five people that have died from any of those things. But Providence artist and educator Scott Lapham does know five people who died from one singular cause, gun violence. One of his first experiences with gun tragedy was losing one of his students. He was standing in line at a food truck to get a sandwich and he got shot. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was really, really intense, really devastating. Soon after, he lost three more students and realized that this was a much bigger problem. There was, there was Eric, Dougie, and then Vinny. And, um, and over the years, you know, I really started to think about it more, like what was, what was happening, how crazy it was. Crazy and close to home, Lapham says the losses brought back a memory he had long tried to suppress, his stepbrother taking his own life. That was a family tragedy and I didn't really think about it in terms of uh, gun violence. So I really started to look at gun violence as something that was kind of across the board. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, people are unhappy across the world. People have conflict across the world, but not every culture has so many guns to make our human behaviors deadly and fatal. And that's what we have. Lapham decided to blend his experiences with gun violence, advocacy, art, and education into one project with a mission to get people talking about the problem. Launching One Gun Gone in 2015, he and his students take molds of guns, develop a statement of what they want to say, and convert the deadly weapons into art and hopefully start a dialogue. I might just be the next man. Students like Jeremy Perez have experienced this sort of tragedy around them and say they have found a safe haven through the program. Gun violence has affected um, my community a lot. A lot of people have been shot, killed. It's, it's stuff that you see at an early age and it, it affects how you could, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, being able to go outside and have fun. It's very hard when you hear gunshots and you have to run back home. One Gun Gone has given students like Perez a place to channel their energy. And when pieces are sold, the work has resulted in several stunning pieces of art displayed in various spaces, including RISD. The ideas and materials used are seemingly endless. We wanted to do it in glass. Um, we didn't realize how ambitious that was going to be. But the reason we wanted to use glass was because it's transparent. That made us think of the, uh, uh, the fleetingness of life. If this drops, there's a potential for it to shatter. And that is talking about a gun in a way that we don't normally think of it, which is guns are powerful. Um, you know, they're, they're all about power. Where did it go from there? We thought that the project would end, but then we started thinking, why should it end? It's like we have a mold. What else could we put in it? One of the program's most powerful designs is the pencil gun. What I was saying was something along the lines of the pen is mightier than the sword. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought the message was. But everybody else who looks at it, especially young people, are just like school shootings. And one young man came in, and we weren't expecting this. He looked at it, and he said, this doesn't have an eraser. That means you can't take it back. 
One student and artist says that gun violence has gotten so bad that programs like One Gun Gone are needed now more than ever. It's definitely gotten worse. There's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of influence it. You know, there's a whole bunch of, when it, what, no matter what it is, whether it's the music people listen to, whether it's the people they surround themselves with, but I can definitely say that it's growing day by day. And our thanks to Bill Bartholomew. That's our broadcast for this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online and see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night.